Our scripture reading this afternoon is from Acts chapter 15. We continue our exposition of the book of Acts. We're in verse 22. We'll be reading into chapter 16 to verse 10. Chapter 15, verse 22. Um, this is the last portion, the, the result section of the, of the council in Jerusalem. We begin reading in verse 22 of chapter 15 of God's true and precious word. Then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying, Ye must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we, have, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which, if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well. Fare ye well. So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle, which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. And Judas and Silas, being prophets, also themselves exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. And after they had tarried there a space, they were let go in peace from the brethren unto the apostles. Notwithstanding, it pleased Silas to abide there still. Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And some days after, Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord, and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia, and went not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them, that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed unto Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the churches. Then came he to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess, and believed. 
But his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him, and took and circumcised him, because of the Jews which were in those quarters. For they knew all that his father was a Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, After they were come to Mysia, they assayed or tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Thus far in the reading of God's holy word. And may the and dear congregation, I invite you to open God's word in, in Acts chapter 15. As we hope to consider um, this portion that that is a few events prior and even in preparation to the second missionary journey. And we we hope to, in this very sermon, deal with some of those preliminaries and and the the results of, of that council in Jerusalem that we considered last time. And some of the issues that led to, to the very second um, missionary journey. And one word that we have to describe this time and what was going on is the word revival. There's nothing short of a powerful work of the hand of God in the days of the early church. We we have been seeing that the church has been surrounded by problems from the outside and from the inside. In in that whole event towards the end of the missionary, that first missionary journey, we saw elements of persecution. And persecution, in essence, is seeking to destroy the church by by killing believers. The mind of persecutors is, let us end this movement by ending the people who are in it. And what does that do? Well, Well, the ones who die are gone. The ones who remain are intimidated. And there are those who will rather hide in their homes than to be out and about as witnesses for Christ. Or they will even deny Christ because they are scared to die. And certainly the the false believers end up falling prey to persecution and denying because they would rather deny Jesus than to die if they don't even know Jesus to begin with. But we've also seen that the church has not just been surrounded by problems outside, it's been surrounded by conflict inside. And and we've just come from that council in Judea, in Jerusalem, which was in essence a a global conflict. It it was of, of a public nature, 
uh, where, where not just an error in the teaching of the church, but even a heresy in the teaching of the church. Remember, we saw the difference. A heresy is when the error is so great that anyone who believes that error and follows through cannot possibly be a believer because it's putting aside the Lord Jesus and the cross and His finished work. And it's putting man as His own Savior. And Lord, and, and that is not Christianity. And this is the heresy that had entered the church by those Pharisees who some of them were true believers, some of them weren't, but they were proposing that for the Gentiles to be saved, they needed to believe in Jesus plus obey elements of the law. That was the heresy that was dealt with in the Council of Jerusalem. And, and we're going to see today um, from, from this um, public um, public conflict, we're going to see a private conflict in the life of Paul and Barnabas that will actually make two missionary parties because Paul and Barnabas will disagree. And we'll see how sad this is because these are men that we've been following all these sermons. They've, they've been close to each other. Barnabas saw Paul being stoned and was, was there beside him. He stuck with him in that whole missionary journey. Barnabas is the one who went to Troas and, and brought Paul to be part of his ministry in, in Antioch. But we're going to get to a point where they part. And, and there's a very sad strain in what this means that can happen to such mature and God-used believers but at the same time, it only, it only pronounces the reality that the church does not auto-destruct and cannot be destroyed by the enemies of it because God is in control. That is the good news. It is a revival that's going on. Look, look at Acts 16 Verse 5, And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. God keeps adding to the church. And this means that there are boys and girls and fathers and mothers who are saying, we don't mind that Christians are being killed. We don't mind that it's dangerous out there to say you're a believer. We want Christ. And that's a revival. Because it's not human. That's, that's not what we as humans want to do. We, we don't like difficult things. We don't like things that put our life in jeopardy. And we, we hear of, of the credentials of, the, of this man Silas and, and Judas. And we hear that they are men who have hazarded their lives. That means hazarded their lives literally is to say they have handed over their lives. They have given up their lives. That's not human. That's, that's not what we do by nature. It is done in our hearts by God. And, and this is what God is doing. It's the only thing that explains that the church exists even to this very day. Because as we're going to see in a little bit, if, if Paul and Barnabas disagree, these are apostles. They are mature. They are studied. Paul saw the Lord Jesus. But they're not perfect. How, how can we survive? Who are the Pauls and Barnabases among us? See, see, if that can happen among them, why doesn't it happen all the time? How can there be more than two people in a church? It is the Lord. It is the Lord's work. It is His doing. And He can even turn things that end up sad. He can still turn it for good. 
And that's what we're seeing as we, as we consider these beginnings, the things that come before, and also during the very beginning of the second missionary journey. We, we will look at these three points to help us through this section in a, in a, in a narrative kind of way. We won't jump verses back and forth. We will, we will go from Acts 15, um, verse 22 on, that where the letter is being um, written and then read there in Antioch. And we'll go on to chapter 16. So we'll look at our first point, the letter and the witnesses, the men who were chosen to go with Paul and Barnabas. And we'll look at some principles there that we learn. The second point will be the contention, the contention between Paul and Barnabas, and the confirmation as they go on confirming the churches, now in two missionary parties. And then thirdly, we'll look at the discernment. And the guidance, the, the whole focus became, becomes Paul and Silas. We never hear about Barnabas again um, in terms of his missionary endeavors. We, we actually just have his name once more um, in, in the rest of the Bible, showing that he's the uncle of Timothy, of, of Mark. But the focus upon Paul will show this, the discernment that Paul had and the guidance that Paul received. And so let us look at the letter and witnesses. And what we will do here is, is see five thoughts about the letter and these witnesses that were chosen to, to bear the letter. The first thing is the authority. Even as we look at these thoughts, we'll look at the narrative itself and, and refresh our minds as to what, what happened. The authority. What I mean by authority is this. Um. There are two things happening. There's, there's like an authority and there's a lack of authority. Those men who left Judea and went to Antioch and started to do what, what even James puts into his letter, verse 24 of chapter 15. James says what these men were doing. He says, For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us, have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying ye must be circumcised and keep the law. And then it says, to whom we gave no such commandment. See, those men had no authority. They were self-commissioned men. They were self-ordained teachers. They were not sent by the apostles, but they pretended to be. They were teaching authoritatively. Look at the authority with which they taught. If you go back to chapter 15, verse 1, it says, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. And, and, and this, this is one thing about Heretics, they, they want to sound like they have authority when they actually have none. So they speak with authority, but they speak falsehood with authority. And, and when you speak falsehood with authority, that, that doesn't mean there is authority. It's just falsehood spoken with, with louder tones. It's just a, a, a greater falsehood, you could say. Because it's spoken so, so, so proudly and so arrogantly. But beloved, don't be intimidated. You, you will meet, maybe you've had a friend who has been teaching a certain doctrine and you know it's not right, but you see the authority with which they teach it or explain it. And it starts intimidating you. And it starts making you think, could it be that he's right? If it's not biblical, he's wrong. 
And see, these men had no authority, even though they tried to, to produce it. And I remember hearing, I forget exactly if it was a book or a sermon, I think it was MacArthur who was saying, one of the ways that you can know when you found a man whose authority is his own and he's teaching falsehood is this. If you defy what he is teaching, and if you criticize in any way and he is angry at you, you found him. And this is why. If what he's proclaiming is the truth, he has nothing to be angry about. Because he has God to defend him and God to protect the truth. But if the truth is his, which means it's false, he's his own God. He's the only protector of that falsehood. And as soon as you criticize it, see, his, his whole castle is blown. It's, it's like the, the, the ramming is right at his very door and he must be the God of that truth or else it dies. And he will be angry at you. He will be vicious at you. But not when, if you're defending the gospel and someone comes to you and says, I don't believe in Jesus and I, I don't believe he died on the cross. Well, we don't need to be angry at that person. We serve a God whose anger is dangerous. I don't have to be in the place of God to display any anger toward this person. I'll feel pity. And my eyes should show love and concern. They are not debating my truth. They are debating heaven's truth. What what do I have to be angry about in my response to this person? I have to show love. But the authority of those who don't have any um, will often be displayed with anger. Now notice the authority that is in the letter. Um, as, we, as we read this letter, um, look at what we read. Remember, Paul, um, Peter, in the whole debate, Peter had, had used revelation and Paul had used God's providence, the miracles and wonders that he had testified that God was doing. James used the word of God. And then look at verse 28 um, in chapter 15. James says, For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. See, James is saying that this is not our idea. Of course, it seemed good to us because we agreed with the one who gave us these ideas, the Holy Spirit. So, the authority. That's the first thought um, in, in our first point. The second thought is the credentials. And this is, as we look at these witnesses, you notice... Look at the element of authority here. Um, Paul and Barnabas have the authority of Antioch. They're, they're coming with a question. And they're not coming on their own. It's Antioch who sent them. They arrive. They speak to the apostles. They have a council. Now they're going back with this letter. But Jerusalem is careful to send two witnesses with them. And, and this is very important where we see the, the reality of witnesses. See, um, they, they have the truth. They have the facts. They have nothing to hide. And so as, as they send the letter in the hands of Paul and Barnabas, these witnesses will arrive there and they will serve as witnesses. They, they will be open to answer questions. They will be able to, to, to make it clear that Paul and Barnabas 
are not the ones who wrote this letter. We, they, they can say, we, we saw the other apostles signing it. This, this is how it went. You have a summary in that letter, but I'll explain everything else we heard. I can tell you what James said. I can tell you what Peter said. So this is what these witnesses are doing. There's, there's a powerful thing in the whole reality of witnesses. And what was their credential? Well, it says in verse 25, It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men, so that's who they are, chosen men, unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas and Paul are called beloved men who are loved. In verse 26, I refer to this phrase, men, so this is... um, Specifically here in the grammar, he's speaking of Silas and Judas. But we know that Paul and Barnabas is in this category too. Verse 26, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's that word, hazarded. They have handed over their lives. They have delivered. They, even the word betrayed. If, if, when Judas betrayed Jesus... That was a handing over of Jesus. And these men have betrayed, as it were, their own lives. They have said, my life, you will serve Christ, even if you have to die. That's where you go. They delivered their lives. The New King James says, men who have risked their lives. The, the Young's literal translation says, who have given up their lives. That was their credentials. And, beloved, think are there greater credentials? No, you, you can come to someone and say, I'm a Christian. What's your proof? Well, I believe in Jesus. How do I know you believe in Jesus? Well, well, I love him. I love to worship him. And I love to talk about him. Are you ready to die for him? Really, there's no greater credentials than that. Because why would someone who's not a true believer be so foolish to go die for someone he doesn't even trust and doesn't even believe? But when a believer is ready to do that, see, he's ready to seal with his blood the witness he gave with his lips. And this is the credentials that these men had. They didn't have a document that said, I'm a Christian. They had the witness from Jerusalem saying, these men have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, beloved, I could ask you this. If you you wonder whether you're saved or not, you could say, Lord, would I hazard my life for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ? Could I do this? Would I hazard my life? Would I put my life in the line? And there were different ways that you could do that in those, in those, in those days. One, one of the ways would be to assemble where God's people were assembled. And if the authorities found out in certain places, look, there's a lot of people assembling there. What, what is that? What tumult is that? Are those, those people of the way? Are they the ones that we're putting behind bars? Let's go see if we find more of them there. And it would be quite hazardous to, quite hazardous to go to church. And you, you hear of today that there are people who, who assemble in certain countries and they cannot dare sing because any kind of singing will, will arouse the neighbors. It will make people know there are believers there so they don't sing. 
I heard of a, of a man who, who was from one of those countries, and then he went to a conference in another country, and he heard the singing of hymns, and he wept and wept because he had never heard congregational singing. So it's very hazardous to go to church in those countries. It was also very hazardous to go visit Paul in jail. And that's why you read that Paul says that many have forsaken me. You you can even give here a certain tolerance that, yes, very young believers would find a very hard time to go take some food to Paul because they knew that maybe they would be the next ones to be in the very cell next to Paul. So a lot of people were scared to go visit Paul because they were scared of hazarding their lives. So you could put it before your own heart if, if that was the context and to visit a loved one or a minister or someone who's in jail. Would you go? Would you go take him some food? And remember in that context, a lot of the prisoners' food had to come from loved ones outside. That's how they would be cared for. So it would be very hazardous to visit or visit those who were behind bars. It's... This is their credentials. And so, so we saw the authority, the credentials. Thirdly, the necessary things. Now I refer to what we read in verse 28. When, when James is writing this letter, he says, It seemed good to us, put no other burden upon you. Notice how interesting. They, they never use the word circumcision. They did just say, we decided not to put any burden upon you. And that, that implies well, we're not going to say that you need to receive this mark of circumcision. But then he says, other than these necessary things. And what are those necessary things? We looked at them last time. I just want to say a few more words about them. Um, Remember, we could put them into three groups. It could be lined up into four, but basically you summarize it into three. There were elements of idolatry, of immorality, and contact with blood in terms of eating or drinking. When it speaks of strangled animals or eating blood, it's the same thing because a strangled animal means that the blood is inside. So if you ate the meat of that animal, it had a lot of the blood in there and you, you weren't being sensitive to the reality of, of blood and its, and its sacramental essence. And in our morning service, we saw that in terms of all of the law, the blood was really like, like the common denominator. Because life was summarized in that blood. And remember in that whole domain that as a family came and in the festivities, whenever there was a sacrifice, it was being communicated. This animal stands in your place. So it was like that blood was representing the very people. And as they saw that blood being shed, it was like a, like a movie into their eyes. My blood deserves to be shed because of my sins. But that animal, bless his heart, he is taking the curse in my place. So the blood, see the blood had that very clear, cultic, sacramental um, symbol. And idolatrous worship, they also had elements of blood, but they had this malice kind of relationship with blood where, where they would despise the reality of blood. They would drink the blood. It was, it was all this kind of violent, cruel kind of way. And, and, and they just felt, we need to be far from that. And if there will be any peace between Gentiles and Jews, 
The Gentiles that come in need to understand that we as Jews have some scruples about blood that you will do well to observe. These are necessary things. This will bring us together. Let us agree to be sensitive about this and about idolatry. And especially here, here he delineated that it would be food offered to idols. So you know how later we find Paul saying that if your conscience finds a freedom to eat that food, then just do it. But be very careful not to offend one to whose heart that would offend. And so Paul, if you want to read all about that, there's in Corinthians, and Paul goes down into details. But at this very beginning, they were saying, let us agree to abstain from the food that's offered to idol because it's so connected with idolatry. And again, see, these these Gentiles had come from idolatry. That was their food. And it was connected to the idol worship. And then there was the element of blood connected to the worship. And then there's the reality of immorality. And, and what's, what's interesting about all of those three, immorality, idolatry, and blood, for the Gentile world and the pagan life, all three were connected with pagan worship. You, you have heard many times how immorality was, was even part of how they worshipped their false gods in such evil and immoral ways. And this, of course, is not one who becomes an element of conscience and that with time there could be freedom. No. Immorality was clear, clearly to be avoided, period. Now notice how we find this connection of immorality with idolatry in the letters of Paul. He's he's dealing with pagan people who knew very well that idolatry and immorality went hand in hand. And if you read in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul there tells, speaks of how they turned from idols to God. Then when you get to chapter 4, he urges them to abstain from sexual immorality because it had been a common thing for their lives. He does the same thing to the Corinthians. First, he, he's speaking about meats offered to idols and to to be careful about that, to abstain, to not allow that to be a shock to any other um, sensitive believer. And later he refers to pagan worship and he condemns sexual immorality. This is from 1 Corinthians 10, 7 through 8. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, and he's referring to the time of the Exodus, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. That was the day they worshipped the golden calf. It was all full of idolatry, full of sacrifices that, that were, they were eating things that probably had been offered to idols and there was immorality connected. So these things necessary, idolatry, immorality, and blood-related things, see, have, have all to do with the, the, the pagan lifestyle. And now, fourthly, this, this will connect still with the, these necessary things. Fourthly, I have here a little title just to help us remember the, the, the difference. Well, what is the difference? Many commentators start showing here how many people get confused. Because what's the whole issue? Those people were saying, you need circumcision and obey the law of Moses or else you're not saved. 
And then they had a meeting and decided, no, we're not going to do this, but do these things. Don't worry about me offered to idols. Abstain from that. Abstain from blood. And some people look at that and say, isn't that the law? Isn't that ceremonial? What's the difference? Why is Paul upset with that, but he's not upset with this? And then the difference is here. It's, in a sense, it's very simple. You, you just need to see the key elements. Um, notice, notice the difference. In chapter 15.1, we already read what those men said. Except ye are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Now, when the authors of this letter finished it, in verse 29... Look what you read, that she abstained from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well. Do you see the difference? He's not saying, so that if you do these things, you shall be saved. No, he's saying you shall do well. It's a different tone. It is not like these are prerequisites to salvation. They, they are prerequisites to sanctification, to, to living a life of unity as a church. But you can be saved, even if sadly yesterday maybe you found yourself eating that kind of meat. And, and maybe you've realized you've offended someone. Go now ask forgiveness. But, but don't feel like you lost your salvation because of that. It is not the eating of that meat. It is not the eating of blood or contact with it that saves you. It is Christ. So they were making that very clear. The false teachers weren't. And so all of these thoughts, one more. So the element of authority, the credentials, the necessary things, the difference, and now fifthly, the unity. Notice an astonishing reality. In, in the midst of all these details, it's kind, of, it's kind of easy to miss this. But a phenomenon that was happening before their eyes that had never been seen before than in these very days. It had been, in a sense, a few years that this had been happening, but it's just being solidified. The absolute unity between two peoples who have had for all history past been unmixed. You heard Peter when he arrives at Cornelius' house saying, you know it's not lawful for a Jewish man to enter into a Gentile's house. See, from, from that point of history back, that's how Jewish people had been living. They wouldn't want to touch a Gentile. They wouldn't enter a home. They had no close fellowship and ties. But, but look at what's happening, beloved. Look at the beginning of this letter again. In, in verse 23, the apostles and elders and brethren, that's, that's including the whole congregation, send greetings unto whom? Unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas had been, and Syria and Cilicia, those further places from the first missionary journey. See, these, these apostles in Jerusalem have never met those Gentiles who were converted in those cities, but they're saying they are our brethren. Our brethren here sends greetings to them, our brethren there. And even though in our history past we've been two divided people who could not agree and who could not unite, now because of Jesus there's no more wall of separation. 
And Paul will say this to, to the Ephesians in chapter 2.14. For he, the Lord Jesus, is our peace, who hath made both one, both, he's meaning Jews and Gentiles, one. He hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two, one new man, so making peace. And so the apostles in the south are calling the brethren in the northwest brethren. Um, You had to be there to experience the astonishing, jaw-dropping reality. Put into your minds this. When Peter comes back from Cornelius, he's chided for what he did. And he has to explain, heaven made me do it. And then they accept it. But you see that it's, it's so ingrained in their hearts, the separation, that what are these Pharisees who believe are saying, well, okay, we will unite with them, but they need to become like us first. If they have the sign of circumcision, and if they obey the law of Moses, well, then in a sense, they'll be proselyte Jews, and then see, we'll see them as united brethren. And see, this is what's monumental about the Council of Jerusalem. They are saying no. They, they, they do not need to become Jews to then become united with Christian Jews. They, they, being Jewish is not of the essence. It's being a believer in Christ. So, so for the talks of today regarding ethnicity and race issues, Acts, in these very chapters we've been reading, is monumental. And it shows that the cure to any kind of divisions of that sort will only be healed through the blood of the Lord Jesus. As we read in Ephesians, it was in His flesh that He abolished those differences. And we can look eye to eye to any one of any nationality and ethnicity and groups and languages, and we can say, you are my brother in Christ, my sister in Christ. And so... Those were the five elements that we can learn from the letter and the witnesses. Now, going to our second point, the contention and confirmation. And we'll see five very brief um, elements about contentions. And then five, a little longer, but hopefully not too long, lessons regarding contentions. And hopefully how to avoid them. How to avoid divisions. And what we, what we come to here is what happened is, is Paul and Barnabas um, go back to Antioch. They read the letter. There's joy. There's, there's acceptance. Um, Silas and Judas, they stay for a little longer. But then you read how, how Judas decided to go back when his time was, was over in Antioch. He goes back to Jerusalem. But Silas chooses to stay. And, and as he stays, Paul and Barnabas thinks... Why don't we go on our second missionary journey? Let's go visit those churches that we planted. But then, verse 37, we read that Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. Remember, that was his nephew. And verse 38, but Paul thought not good to take him with them. Who departed, and here's the reason why he thinks he's not good to go, departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. So now we pick up, remember, we saw on the first trip that as soon as they left Cyprus and arrived at the coast of Asia, John Mark 
said, I'm going home. There was a silence there, whether that was good, whether that was okay, whether it was wrong. But now we find that it was wrong. It it indicates that there was some infirmity in John. Possibly he thought, this is scary. Um, Okay, I survived Cyprus, but what lies ahead in, in in this area of Asia? I prefer to go home. And, and it was so serious, this departure of Mark, to the point where Paul here thinks, no, I will not take him. He's not ready. And Barnabas is saying, I will take him. He's ready. So, of course, this is, this is the contention. And so these five things about the contention. The first thing, contention can come all of a sudden. The Bible, of course, doesn't give us all the details, but we, don't, we didn't see this coming. It was so sudden. It was absolutely sudden. And, and there's this nature about contention. And, and beloved, this is where, where we do well to learn these realities, these points now. Like we think of even the life of our church. I would say this is a very blessed and healthy time. I do not see under under tides, as it were, of contentions. This is the time to be ready because it can come suddenly. And what keeps coming to my mind as we've been looking at Acts, and remember, I made that big list of how prayer is strewn everywhere. And I believe, of course, it's God's providence, but He is using God's people in His dependence, their dependence in God. They are praying all the time. And when you see these contentions, what doesn't destroy the church is that God is answering their prayers. And I just keep thinking that this is what we need to do. We need to depend upon the Lord individually and in our homes and corporately praying and pleading. God, protect us from dangers out there. Protect us from dangers in here. Notice what's happening. We went from a public and global, as it were, contention. The whole church was involved. Now we're in a private contention between Paul and Barnabas. And, 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 and it can come unawares. This, this is the first thought. It's sudden. The second thing, contention can happen because of a very small matter. Because we, especially if we see the context here was heresy and, and they had a contention. I can understand this, but now this is Paul Mark, whether we'll take him or not, and you're going to fight about it. Why couldn't Barnabas say, okay, Paul, I will, I will wait. And why couldn't Paul say, okay, let us try. There's really a mystery here about who could have given. The truth is that neither of them did, and that's what kept the contention. And it can happen about something so very small. The third thing, contention can happen between very close friends. This is exactly what we see in the text. I I don't have to explain this. Paul and Barnabas, can you imagine? These seemed like they would be the missionary um, um, group and team that would just win the world for Christ. But their second missionary journey does not go together because of their contention. Fourthly, contentions often divide between family lines. Here's a very important point, beloved, for us to be careful. If we start... Hearing different views of different things, let us be careful that we will not be guided by who do I like most, but that we'll be guided by the Word. 
how can I be more like Jesus? And who may be as being more like Jesus? But you see, Paul saw Barnabas, and Barnabas saw John Mark. John Mark was Barnabas' nephew. See, there are family issues here. And, and, and the lines drew right there. An uncle and a... Even the nephew could have said, Uncle, I'm not going. I don't want it to be where this missionary journey will not happen between you two because of me. I'm going to stay. So many things could have happened, but you see the dividing line has family issues, and, and, and we do well to learn this and to be careful. And then the fifth thing is that contention does not always seem very clear. And this is, in a sense, why there is a contention. Even as commentators look at this, it's interesting, as you read them, there are some who blame Barnabas, there are some who blame Paul, and there are some who blame both. And Matthew Henry is one of those, and and I kind of agree, I'll read what Matthew Henry says, but the ones who blame Barnabas is because they say, well... um, Paul is the one whom obviously God used the most. He's the one that wrote most of the letters in, in the New Testament. Um, we do read in the text that, that Paul and Silas departed being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. So that might be scripture showing that Paul was more in the right. But then there's some who, who criticize Paul very strongly. Because they'll, they'll say things like this. Well, why could Paul not simply be more patient? It's obvious that he is judging Paul, John Mark, not ready. So he's not forgiving. He's not being patient. He's not being generous like, like Barnabas. Paul had championed unity. Why is he so quick to disagree? So who is right and who is wrong? And Luke, who wrote the Acts could have, of course, been very forthright and tell us if he had an opinion or even an inspired opinion that would have been better. But the fact is that we absolutely cannot be 100% sure, which always tells us that that is not, therefore, what God wants us to focus upon. But the lesson is this. Contention is not always so clear. And we may have a friend on this side and a friend on this side. And I can understand your view. I can understand your view. Which view will I take? It might be hard. But remember, Apostle Paul was inspired by the Lord to give one big key for contentions to end. That we would have the mind of Christ. Philippians 2. And what was the mind of Christ? It was a mind of humility. A mind of humility. Well, let us, let us see some lessons from this event. We saw the five elements, but what are some events, some lessons from this event? And, and these are five very brief um, lessons. The first one is this. Since we can't tell for sure who is right or wrong, we, we need to bow to Scripture and acknowledge that what Scripture is teaching us is that we need to be careful. That contention can happen. And it's not a matter of, okay, Paul was right or Barnabas was right. It's just a matter, it can happen. And we need to be sincere about it. Again, if Paul and Barnabas, who were so mature, were tempted to discord, who are we not to? It shouldn't surprise us that there can be um, contention among us. And so we need to be very, very humble about this and realize our need of the Lord to guide us and to protect us from contention. And the second thing to learn is 
that this reveals that as amazing, and this is what we've been seeing, is how amazing Paul and Barnabas is, but as amazing as they are, they are men still. And this is what Scripture is revealing. And, and, and then it shows us that when Luke was writing Acts, he was not writing what some authors called hagiography. If you've ever heard what that means, is whenever the ancient church, or not just ancient, but medieval church, when it was writing about those saints of old, they would write the biographies of those men and women, and those were called hagiography, and it would have these fantastical notions about what those men and women did. They were like superhuman. It was full of records of their infallible lies, miracles, mystical attainments, and austere life full of asceticism and radicalism, and, and people would read those books as if it were like the fiction of the day, but what they thought was true and thought, oh, I would like to have a life like this, but it was, it was just all full of falsehood. But this is not hagiography. Because our heroes, Paul and Barnabas, are fallible men. Paul cannot humble himself to the the decisions of Barnabas. And Barnabas cannot humble himself to the decisions of Paul. And and we even don't understand who needs to humble themselves a little more. Maybe Maybe Mark himself. But God's word is always honest with us. And shows us we are not to trust or, or sanctify men, deify them. This is why I like what Matthew Henry says, as, as he in a sense blames both to a certain degree. He says, perhaps Paul was too severe upon the young man and did not allow his faults the extenuation it was capable of. Did not consider what a useful woman his mother was in Jerusalem, nor make the allowances he might have had made to Barnabas' natural affection. He's, he's, a, he's saying, it's his uncle, let him take him. But, but it was Barnabas' fault that he took this into consideration. In a case wherein the interest of Christ's kingdom was concerned and indulged in it too much. Paul, Barnabas was as if saying, he is my cousin, he is my nephew, I will take him. And they were certainly both in fault to be hot as to the contention be sharp. To let the contention be sharp. It is to be feared they gave one another some hard words. As also to be so stiff as each to stick resolutely to his opinion. And neither to yield. We must own it was their infirmity. And is recorded for our admonition. So this is what I mean. I think the main lesson here is let us be careful. And let us be humble. Let, it, let us learn to give in to other people's choices, to, to value what other people may say. It might be completely contrary to what is better for you, but you understand that what is better is the unity of the church and the glory of Christ. And this decision will not impair that. So, my brother, I want what, what makes you happy. That's the Christian way. The third thing we learn is this, that, that this is proof positive that the Lord is who sustains and undergirds and protects His church. I alluded to this as we saw the first element here of of those five um, realities. See, Paul and Barnabas, if they were who they were and they contended, who are we to think that we will be above this? We need the Lord. 
And if we are united, beloved, it's because the Lord is with us. The Lord is doing it. The Lord is giving hearts the humility that we need. And if we sense we're not humble enough, let's go to the Lord. He will give it. And He will keep His church united. We need to depend upon Him. Fourthly, contention never has to have the last word. Even as I'm talking about this, I'm saying in a way, you know, it kind of will come. We're not perfect. It might, it might happen. I'm not meaning with any of this that we can let it happen, that it has to happen. The truth is that it never has to. We can always seek counsel. You know, Matthew Henry goes to the point of, it doesn't seem like they were involving a third party. Why didn't they give time? Couldn't Paul and Barnabas had said, let's leave in a month and let's pray and fast. The Lord made it clear where we were to go and that it was you and me. Let's, let's depend on the Lord again. We, we don't see much of this. So let us never give in to like a fatalistic reality that, you know, contention will happen anyway. Let us, let us just let it happen. It doesn't have to be that way. And then fifthly and lastly... As God is able to do with all evil, so He did it with this. And what I mean is that God can turn evil to good. And again, don't let this be an excuse to allow contention, thinking, well, God can use it for good. But this is the encouraging thing in in this, this show. Even though there is this personal contention between Paul and Barnabas, this is not the end of the church. And it's actually the beginning of two missionary parties. Paul was saying, let's go to the churches and, and confirm them and strengthen them. And, and they, they could only go in one place at a time. And Barnabas goes to Cyprus with John Mark. And Paul goes through the land to that Asian area of, of Derby and Lystra. That direction where he was stoned last. There are two missionary parties. And some commentators point to this reality that God turned that evil into good. Again, don't allow that to make us not take contention seriously, but it's always encouraging to know that sin never has the last word in the church. And thirdly, our third and last point are the discernment and guidance that we see here. And, and what I mean by discernment, there are two things here that, that is beautiful in terms of the discernment. Paul says to Barnabas, let us, let us go back and visit the churches that we planted Paul could have said, let's go to a new section that we hadn't been to before. That would have been praiseworthy. But God wants him to go reaffirming the churches that had recently been planted. That's an element of discernment that God gave Paul. Even Barnabas does that. He goes to Cyprus where they had been. And Paul goes to that northern part of of Asia where he also had gone. And, And he's confirming the churches. That's... That was a beautiful thing, a loving thing. Can you imagine be, be a church that was planted by Paul? He had to leave, and you're, and you're left to, to what you have of, of scriptures, and, and there aren't much of the New Testament. There's nothing of the New Testament. And then there were those false teachers coming with falsehood. They, they, they needed discernment. They needed help, and here Paul comes back. And so that was great encouragement. There's also a discernment when we find Timothy in the text. I I won't go into all the details because there's more detail there in chapter 16. But Timothy is someone they meet um, in in Derby and Lystra. They they meet Timothy. 
He was the son of a Jewish woman with, with a Greek father. And he didn't have yet the sign of, of circumcision. And, and here again, people get very concerned, very confused. Because Paul was someone saying, let's not worry about circumcision. But Paul's the one who says, Timothy, you need this sign to be ministering to Jewish people. The simple difference is this. Even though he was only half Jewish, that did make him Jewish. And Paul understood. Again, it comes down to those issues. Paul understood the underlining, the the most basic things that would make Jewish people at least okay with how ministering could happen. Blood-related things. Idolatry-related things. Morality-related things. And a man who was a Jew, even though he was half, without a sign, would be a very basic thing he would lack. And so Paul says, here again, an element of discernment. Timothy, let us have the sign and you'll go with me to minister. And so they go. And and you find in here that Paul was not an innovator. He was not saying, let us throw away the law of God. Let us throw away all these principles. No. He, He wanted to win men for Christ. And and what Matthew Henry says here is is really the very heart of the matter. He says, Thus to the Jews he became as a Jew, that he might gain the Jews, and all things to all men, that he might gain some, from Paul's own writing. He was against those who made circumcision necessary to salvation, but used it himself when it was conducive to edification. Nor was he rigid in opposing it, as they were in imposing it. So here you, you, you get an element of, of, of what the heart of the believer should be. We, we should not be as those who would say, you need to have this or I have no fellowship with you. That is a wrong kind of heart. And that was, was Paul was against. But Paul was not against saying, you know, Timothy, it'll be less of a struggle. Why don't you get the sign of circumcision? And that will be dealt with. Paul was basically proposing both things. Don't have a heart that is demanding things, but do have a heart that is humble to acquiesce to things. Again, that's the heart of humility. A heart who is willing to serve. And I just want to end with this. I will pick up. Lord willing, with with the guidance, with the Spirit, guiding them into Philippi. But I just want to end with this thought. Why? Why were Paul and Barnabas and John Mark and Silas, who is now the, the helper, the associate with Paul, why are they doing what they do? Why are they hazarding their lives for the sake of the gospel? Well, there's really only one answer. If I were to look at Paul's life, and if I were to look at Barnabas's life, they would all have a different dimension or a different date, you could say. But it, was, it would all be because of their sight of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had seen a risen Savior. See, Paul knew of a Jesus who died on the cross, and that's all he knew. 
But when he saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, he saw the one who died was made alive. And that changed everything for Paul. He was no longer afraid of his own life because he met the one who gives life after we die. And he was willing now to hazard his life into into areas unknown and dangerous places for the sake of Christ. He has seen the resurrected Jesus. And it, it, it hasn't changed. This is how you become a believer. But you have to see the resurrected Savior by faith today. And you meet him in the pages of scriptures. He, he, he showed himself to Paul and he's showing himself to you. You go to the Gospels and he comes to Mary and he comes to, to those who are in the road of Emmaus. And when he does that and you're reading it, he comes to you. Have you seen the resurrected Savior? Have you believed that he who was dead is now alive? And that is what gives life to you. And that is what gives you this boldness that we see in Paul and Barnabas, and this zeal and this desire to, to hand over your life. And that's the only thing that explains what Paul and all these other men are doing. It is not a man's endeavor. It certainly can't be. Because what was Paul's endeavor when he was Saul? It was to kill this whole way. It was to persecute the way of the Christians. But then he becomes one. See, all through Acts we have this shining before us. This is, this is God's work. It is not man's endeavor. Man is, is, is even making havoc of it all. They, they, they are fighting. They are having contentions. There are heresies that are coming and springing among them. And there, there are fightings and there, there are persecutions out there. And the Jews are, are, are coming and wanting to stone them. And pretty soon Paul will be in Philippi and he will be in prison. But the church doesn't die. It continues. It grows. Because it's God's. It's His. Are you His? Have you seen Christ? Do you believe that He has resurrected? And because He died for sinners, that you're a sinner, and that you are one whom, whose sins could be pardoned and forgiven because He suffered and died for you. Do you believe these things? And this is what makes the church humble, and this is what makes the church brave and it's what protects the church to be what it's meant to be a beacon of light in this world amen let us pray our gracious and glorious God we thank thee Lord that through the pages of scripture we we have guidance when there may be um, global contentions and also Lord when there is the danger of private Tensions, And we pray, Lord, that we would learn from thy word, not to, not to honor men, but to glorify thee. Scripture does not allow us to deify Paul and Barnabas. They are, they are men with passions like our own. They are imperfect. We don't even know who is right and who is wrong, and possibly both were wrong to a certain degree. But Lord... That's because they are not the focus, but thou art. 
And we pray, O oh Lord, that we would be as those who depend upon Thee. Help us, Lord, never to think we can do church in our own strength, that we can build the church when, when Thou art the one who said, I will build my church. And we see it being built. And we pray, Lord, would Thou do the same thing to our own congregation, that there may be those, Lord, who, who are brought by Thy grace and by Thy power, Lord, that Thou would be the one who increases the number daily. Lord, we, we may have seen an increase through the years. And we have seen young people profess their faith. But Lord, we still have not lived in days where Thou art establishing churches in the faith, increasing in number daily. Where we have daily a conversion among us or from our neighborhood, and then coming to church. Lord, we pray, do this work again. And help us, Lord, to keep our eyes fixed upon the Lord Jesus. Protect us, Lord, from contentions. Protect us from error, from heresy, from false teachers. Protect us from persecution. Be with thy dear people, Lord, who are in places where persecution is active. Please, Lord, comfort their hearts. And be their stay. We ask all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.